This one really, really shocked me. UK mental health charities are accused of handing sensitive data over to Facebook for targeted ads. The therapy app Fantasy prioritized female providers that specialize in anxiety to make it seem like a dating app, waiting 70 days to be seen by a therapist to men struggling with depression and chronic conditions with ADHD, not even getting diagnoses and care. Who can you trust with your mental health? The views expressed in this podcast do not reflect the views and thoughts of my employer. They are my own thoughts and opinions. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Crossover Connections with Jack Wang podcast. My name is Jack Wang. I'm a scientist and college professor based in Australian University. This podcast talks about science, technology, and productivity and explores all the connections and the latest headlines in these areas to see how they can impact our everyday lives and the jobs of the future. This particular episode can be seen as a bit of a down. I couldn't help but talk about this headline when I came across it because it is really shocking to me because I know a lot of people who rely on apps for their everyday lives and mental health is one of these things that's become much more prominent and much more visible in our working environments. And one of the ways that we thought might help was to use apps that help improve our day-to-day cognitive function, cognitive ability, and mental well-being. This headline from the ABC really talks about how unregulated this whole area of mental health apps is and also how vulnerable users can be who routinely engage in these apps to help with their mental health. So let's dive into the article a little bit. This is again from ABC from Australia and the idea that mental health technology is going to be the way of the future is not really a secret anymore. Certainly in Australia, we're increasingly using technology to care for our own mental health and these estimates, nearly 9 million Australian adults have experienced a mental disorder and mental health care is simultaneously becoming less accessible and I think that's the same across the world. Not enough medical professionals and health professionals are heading in to the mental health space. Psychologists and psychiatrists are very much a rare resource and there's not enough of them heading into those professions. So if you're a medical student who listens to this podcast, really consider that as one of your future endeavors because certainly this is something that the world overwhelmingly needs. One way that the startup sector likes to frame all of these things is there is a sector prime for disruption and their solution more often than not is an app, right? It's a piece of technology or a website that can help fix an issue that everyone has that couldn't possibly have been fixed up until that point. In Australia, we have bitten into this trend very aggressively. We are a leading consumer of mental well-being apps. Seeing a therapist, you've got to be able to line up to see a therapist and make a booking. Usually, if you're lucky, a month in advance is enough lead time to see someone, but it takes time to build trust with a therapist and a psychologist, and you might not start opening up until the third appointment, right? So that's a number of months in advance, a lot of preparation, a lot of anxiety, and making sure you've got the right counselor, the right therapist. And oh, by the way, if your insurer, if your health insurance doesn't cover it, it's very expensive. And the students and young people in particular could benefit a lot from these services, but often it's prohibitively expensive for young people to see mental health practitioners. So the whole idea of having an app, this is billed as the way forward for this problem. But in Australia, it is a highly unregulated black box of a market. And the majority of apps have no evidence behind them. And you could think that according to the app, you are doing something that's positive for your mental health. In reality, maybe some underlying issues that are much more serious aren't being addressed. And you think that you're addressing the root cause of the issue when in fact you're just papering over them and maybe something worse would emerge later on. And of course, there are some ideas around user safety and there's a 
few well-publicized examples of this. BetterHelp is one of the most uh, notorious examples where they sponsored a whole bunch of YouTubers to make videos about mental health support and especially during 2020, during social isolation across the world, during the pandemic, their platform was getting a lot more visibility and they essentially could not cash those checks. They couldn't back up their claims of being able to support people with a counselor. They'll connect you with a counselor anywhere in the world to talk through your mental health problems in a one-on-one -on -one session. The reality is there's just not that many mental health professionals in the world, right? So there are way more people who have problems than people who can solve those problems or help address those problems in some way in mental health. Whether it be BetterHelp or Talkspace, these kinds of online therapy providers would somehow have access to this infinite pool of qualified and certified and validated mental health professionals it was always a little bit hard to believe because it's hard for physical clinics to find enough therapists, let alone this online conglomerate. So there are a lot of people who are mental health adjacent, who maybe had some training, but not in this space. And certainly in my experience, the communication skills and the interpersonal skills you need to be effective in any kind of public arena that's a very very rare skill set anyway and when you couple mental health awareness and training and clinical understanding onto all that that's a really small pool of people actually if you log onto these services and they connect you with a counselor and they have all the qualifications and they are really in tune with the type of communication that would best suit your therapeutic needs for your mental health and they had a booking available, man, that's a lot of conditions, a lot of caveats for you to jump through before any of this would begin to help you in your mental health in your time of vulnerability. The fact that it was around is a positive development, but they weren't able to back up the claims they were making. It's not better than real therapy. It might be more accessible than traditional forms of therapy, than booking an appointment to the doctor and may or may not be cheaper depending on what plan you sign up for. There are more expensive versions of the plan and you can see the counselors more frequently, etc. Yes, it's a positive development, but it's not going to replace traditional therapy in its current format that quickly. doesn't mean that it's not making money though. $500 million in 2022, US $500 million. So in Australia, that's almost $800 million. And that's a lot of expenditure on these mental health app trials. The flip side of this is that your data that you're entering into these mental health apps might be leaked. If you've listened to the podcast previously, we've talked about how any big provider, any big institution with any kind of data that is valuable will be hacked at some point. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. It's more about transparency of what data they have access to. Should you be having that information in the first place? And what are you doing with that information as a part of routine practice that's more concerning? And what has happened, especially for BetterHelp, was that they were fined over 10 million, 11.6 million Australian dollars for sharing user data with third parties. This is absolutely shocking. I couldn't believe it when I read this. The data that's being shared is going to be what kind of data? It's going to be, hey, I'm, de I'm depressed or I'm anxious or I flag myself as having impulse control. These were really, really sensitive, vulnerable metadata, if not identifiable data that could be connected to your social media. So Facebook would know how to serve ads to you for things like antidepressants or self-help books and they can make a buck off your mental health vulnerabilities and BetterHelp was accused of selling your data onto third parties. Knowing no guarantees about the protection of your data. In fact, many of these mental health apps, they don't have any obvious policies around privacy of user data. So you really have to 
be sure what you're doing when you're logging onto these apps, that your data is being protected. And again, your data is not that safe because any big provider will eventually get hacked, but they need to be transparent with what's happening to your data at the outset. The idea that they had to, to share their user data with third parties is, is interesting. That would indicate to me that this is not that profitable, right? that they had to find alternative mechanisms of monetizing this process. The sharing of user data would be their way of maybe staying solvent or maybe not losing quite as much money or keeping everything afloat because as i said there's not that many mental health professionals in the world to be able to make these apps a reality it's not something like uber or lyft or whatever ride sharing where most people can learn how to drive pretty easily in the bar of entry certainly getting a driver's license is more accessible than getting a medical license so it's not like there's an infinite pool of experts that can go into the system and start giving out mental health support very effectively. It's kind of a business model that's on a bit of a shaky ground if you don't back it up with the right amount of support. The fact that they've had to sell user data to get some money, maybe letting a little light under the hood here. Another part of this is of course, the quality of the service that the app is providing you. If they're not claiming to connect you to a mental health professional and they're saying, play this game, it's gonna help with your mental health or do these exercises and it gives you prompts for breathing exercises or thought exercises you could do, how backed up by evidence are these approaches. A lot of these apps may improve the monitoring and management of health symptoms. So it raises the awareness that these disorders do exist, which is a good thing. There's a lot of countries where mental health stigma is still terrible and most people don't even like thinking about mental health, let alone admitting it to their family and friends that they have mental health. But a lot of these apps are not following evidence-based frameworks, very limited number of empirically supported mental health apps during that time. This is a bit of the wild, wild west. You have to be very careful which of these apps you sign up to and incorporate as part of your daily mental health check-in process. Now, the last part of this is a bit more specific to Australia. It's not a regulated landscape. It is medical. But for a long time, we in Australia did not regulate it through the Therapeutic Goods Administration. We regulate physical medical devices and some level of medical software. But it wasn't until very recently an amendment was made to the relevant piece of legislation. Digital mental health tools were now being included into the Therapeutic Goods Act. So there is a set framework, a set guideline for accrediting mental health apps to a certain government regulated standard. So I think in the future, hopefully these apps will have a certain badge of approval that there is oversight and that's a positive development going ahead. But still, there is no guarantee that the data that you give them will stay there and stay private for that long. This is not an Australian only problem. There is this headline where BetterHelp is the most famous example of revealing consumer data, including sensitive mental health information to Facebook for targeted advertising. So this is one of the most famous examples. UK mental health charities. Mental health charities. They're handing sensitive data over to Facebook for targeted ads as well. This one really, really shocked me. Biggest charities in Britain have shared details of sensitive web browsing with Facebook. I read a little bit more into this and I was not quite as upset as when I first read this headline. It makes you lose faith in a, a lot of the good intentions of, of many organizations. Users who clicked on content linked to depression, self-harm and eating disorders, they were tracked and sent to Facebook. They would also be able to track clicking a link saying they need help, triggered sharing that data with Facebook, even though it did not include details of conversations between charities or users. The metadata is enough, man. The metadata is enough to link to their Facebook Facebook account and start the targeted ads rolling into their individualized feeds without anyone else knowing. And these are very vulnerable people with problems. 
with serious problems. Facebook must have made money with this data and they must see value in this data. How intentional was this data leak? Was it part of an agreement? Did the mental health charities really knowingly sell the data? How did it actually happen? 20 National Health Service, NHS English, England trusts were sharing data. Plug in a piece of code that Facebook provided called MetaPixel, which embeds into your website. And the pitch that Facebook gave these websites is, hey, if you embed this piece of code, you will get analytics on traffic sources, on where the users are coming from. And every website lives off those kinds of analytics. This podcast, my YouTube channel, they all benefit a lot from analytics. So the fact that you run a website and you pay for that website, you want to make sure you get good return on investment, good ROI. So analytics is a good thing to have. But what was not made super transparent to these charities was that Yes, you get those insights, but so does Facebook. Those analytics are shared to Facebook as well. Then you might get ads for hotel deals or you might get ads for drugs. You might get ads for books or services that vulnerable people tend to want to subscribe to. And this is very distasteful. It leaves a terrible taste in your mouth. But this is the risk when you share your data and you enter your mental health data into a website or an app. This is very terrible and does not help the stigma of sharing mental health. Next article is from a long-form New York Magazine article, which is really great. It talks about the therapy app Fantasy, and it deep dives into this topic in way more detail than I've ever seen. So it's really worth a read. It's linked in the show notes below. A personal accounting of a few different perspectives of how people interacted with these apps. And as I read this, I was triggered on some level, but also it resonated with me as a teacher because this is really what we're trying to do in teaching as well. The idea of these apps that can connect with you and solve your problems is similar to the online learning problem that teachers have been trying to crack for the better part of 20, 30 years. A student halfway around the world can have an amazing educational experience while I sit here and talk to them online. That's the dream, but it's not yet our reality. This article has a lot of detail into it. It's very long. I just want to highlight a couple of things from it. The first one is the use case of how you're supposed to use these therapy apps really to make it seem like a dating app for you to connect with someone and find a mental health provider or, or, or counselor that is connected with what your problems are and connected to your demographics to maximize the likelihood that you might be someone that they could connect with and help. They could prioritize female providers that specialize in anxiety and, and advertise that as a feature of the platform. And this is from Talkspace, one of these mental health app providers. But then underneath this message were three male providers. So there's incongruence in how it's pitched and how the metadata lines up for people wanting to find a good counselor based on certain characteristics and what the realities of work. The employers can say, your benefit working here is that once a month you get a free visit to a mental health professional that's offered through this service. And in this case, Bob, he works in a cybersecurity firm in Massachusetts. He couldn't get a visit for more than a month. And the therapist that he tried to contact had 210 clients in his caseload and just didn't have time to see Bob. So it's hard to get a meeting. Like a dating app, you have to be able to reach these people through the app. And it's like a text message thread that goes unresponded to for days, if not weeks at a time. It's very different than the synchronous experience. Again, this is triggering for me as a teacher because we grew up as teachers and train as teachers to be good in the in-class room environment, to connect with an auditorium full of students and to be effective in that medium. And during the pandemic, all of us just stuck behind these screens trying to communicate enthusiasm for the topic through a computer screen. And that's not the same thing. If we then take that metaphor towards online discussion boards, again, it's not the same. 
right? We're getting lots of student questions. We're trying to answer them. It just doesn't feel like enough for the students. It doesn't feel like enough for the teachers either. This is the same thing for therapy, of course. Like you'd need that synchronous thing. People would be texting and hours of testing. They didn't really want to be as honest. They wanted to be a bit more anonymous. And it also shifts the way that therapists do their work because you'd want to have conversation in the moment, having a conversation, but this asynchronous texting that you're doing on the phone is, is not the same. So it's a different skill set for the therapist as well. We've spoken primarily from the perspective of the patients and people who are vulnerable to mental health, but let's for a second think again about the, the therapists and the providers of these services, how it aligns with their training. We've already talked about it's different texting your patients as opposed to speaking to them in a conversation. But also let's talk about the pay because again, all of this cannot be run on fumes of good intentions. It needs to be a solid money-making venture to then have the virtue of saying, hey, we can make a little less money if it means we can give services to more people. If you're losing money constantly, that is not going to work for anyone in the long run. You're going to harm all the people who have entrusted their data to you because you're not going to be around if you're losing money every single month. How much are the therapists making through these services? A therapist joined BetterHelp, working constantly, and she made $1,900 that month. Good, but not astronomical. You know what I mean? Like $2,000 a month for someone who went to medical school or professional accreditation in something like mental health. Depending on where you work, that could be a lot, could be a lot less money. But I'll just say it's certainly not what you would assume to be a full-time salary for a medical professional in America. The workload doesn't seem to be any lower than working in a full-time private practice. So this therapist had 55 clients. If they hit $1,000 a month, that would be a really good month for them. So again, this is not going to replace traditional therapy. Therapists will make more from how having a practice and speaking to patients more routinely, it's not going to replace that. This is not yet a really bulletproof financial model that will be sustainable. So these apps and these startups are still making it up and figuring it out as they go, which again, doesn't bode well for the individual, for the patient who's, who is vulnerable. And at the end of the day, it's that same takeaway message. There's just not enough professionals who are good at communicating to patients and relating and empathizing and have the qualifications in mental health diagnostics and mental health services. So if you are someone with an interest in this or you're a medical student or you're someone who's interested in people, really consider going into this area because we need way more people in this space, talking to people about their problems, helping them realize the severity or the extent of their mental health condition and directing them to other services or helping them have an ongoing conversation. There's just not enough professionals to fill the gap in clinics and private practices or through these apps. There is no quick fix for this and we probably can't be trusting our data to these mental health technologies, at least for the short term. And this brings me to our recurring segment on the podcast, Whose Job Is It Anyway? Where we try to explore how the most recent headlines tie into our professions and the jobs of the future. And this article is, again, not a super optimistic article. It's a bit of a downer. I don't want this episode to be a downer. I don't want this podcast to be a downer. But it talks about mental health in my profession of academia. The pandemic, the global pandemic in 2020 exposed some risks and vulnerabilities of mental health that were there all along. You can find this article via the link in the show notes. The main takeaway, the main thesis is that mental health in academia has never been worse. And mental health, I think, across the world has never been worse because it's made the underlying cracks much more visible. This is not a sob story. 
uh, I'm an academic and I've had my fair share of mental health issues over the years and hopefully I'm coping with them okay at the point that this podcast has been uploaded. But we are in a competitive sector where there's a lot of work and the workload is not your typical workload. It is not a nine to five workload by and large. You get to decide how much of it you're doing on a certain day, but there is never an end to the day in terms of, hey, I've done everything I need to do today. We're often working on projects that take months, if not years to mature. We're working towards an end goal that is not right in front of us. And that is a huge trigger for people with anxiety and depression. If you don't know what you're working towards in the short term, and there are these lofty goals that you don't really see day in, day out, that can put a lot of innate psychological pressure on people who these underlying mental health vulnerabilities. And there's something about academics, people who are interested in intellectually exploring a topic, that Venn diagram is almost a perfect circle. I think there's an enormous amount of academics that have reported mental health problems. And in 2003, 24% of the sample of academics had substantial level of psychological distress. A 2017 report, 37% of academic staff had mental health disorder. A British study, 43% of academics the sample had symptoms of a mild mental disorder, which include depression, anxiety, and burnout. And in this particular article survey, it was up to two-thirds of academics are expressing mental health issues. So this is really very pervasive in our sector. You could extrapolate out to other sectors, but that's the sector I know the best, my own sector, so I'll speak on it. The vulnerability that we're under is that we are a numbers-based, metrics-based sector. And before you think this does not apply to you, we are often the tip of the spear for other professions. We are so filled with smart ways of outsmarting ourselves that the things we implement in academia often trickle over to businesses, right? And businesses are often what regulate jobs that people who aren't in academia do. Collecting a whole bunch of data on how effective we are, how many papers we publish, how many grants, if we post on social media, how many clicks, how many likes, how many integrations do we have. So we are so smart that we figured out how to rank ourselves, our universities, our individual staff that has been weaponized against us. And this kind of data trend is bleeding over into every sector. So it's in sports, you want to know what your percentage of getting a certain shot in the basket is. So only take shots from this angle at this point on the court. You want to know, hey, if I'm selling pizzas, how often does this particular pizza sell on this Wednesday night in this area of the world. Every business has been driven by data and driven by analytics. So we are constantly being evaluated by data. And that is not great for people with underlying mental health issues, knowing you're constantly being judged. There are all the typical vulnerabilities that come along with gender inequality and minorities in general. If you're of a different race or ethnicity or sexual orientation or gender identity, this compounds it. It doesn't replace the pressures that you're under. It just compounds it as a certain percentage multiplying on top of the existing issues that we already face in our sector. Of course, the other one is the invisibility. Because we're in a competitive sector, no one likes talking about it. I started talking about imposter syndrome to more and more early career researchers in whatever mentoring capacity I have. And this is something that is real and it really causes people to feel like they don't belong in a very competitive sector and exacerbates all those mental health issues. But we can't really talk about it. It's just not really the done thing. We don't really like talking about vulnerabilities in the workplace. And we all want to be the one that shows up even on our sick days. That's a very stereotypical view of kind of the true warrior that guts it out even under duress. Again, academia is often a preview of 
what all the other sectors are going to experience in the near future because we have evolved in certain discussions quicker than many, many other industries and often it's going to come for you next if you see it happening in academia. The direct action that this article is proposing to solve these mental health issues, standardization of some frameworks around mental health to make more visible the supporting resources that people can access, whether they be students or staff for mental health, but they'll run into that same issue. There are not enough trained mental health professionals in any system that can help the people and give the people help in a timely manner. This is not. So again, I'm imploring anyone who's listening to this who has even a glancing tangential interest in mental health to consider this as a career path because there is a huge demand for it in the world and that demand is not going away anytime soon. And if you don't want to work in it forever, even having an understanding of mental health is going to bleed over into your everyday lives because odds are the people you work with, the people that you connect with, whether be your clients or students or seniors or really young people, they will have mental health distress on some level. And if you can understand what they're going through, you will be able to communicate with them that much more effectively. I don't like to pose problems without solutions. So here is my solution to conclude this episode of the podcast, what we can do individually to really help mental health in our everyday lives. Is it going to be a lot more money? investing in mental health. That's part of the solution, definitely, but it's not enough. Systemic investment in mental health is not enough to get us across the board because there's a case study here from the conversation where New Zealand pledged $1.9 billion in 2019 to improve mental health services. Four years later, it's clear that the high hopes of transforming that sector in New Zealand have not yet worked. Waiting 70 days to be seen by a therapist to men struggling with depression and chronic conditions with ADHD, not even getting diagnoses and care. So money alone is not enough. You can't just throw money at the problem. You have to really understand where that money is going. In New Zealand, they gave the money to health improvement practitioners and health coaches based within general medical practitioners and giving them early access presenting to their GP if you've got a mental health condition. And they also invested in mental health apps, making them widely available to the public. Again, we talked about this. The apps are good, but the problem is there's not enough mental health professionals that you can connect to via the apps. People who go to mental health, they are existing healthcare workers from a slightly adjacent area of healthcare. So the article says it's akin to robbing Peter to pay Paul. And the health workforce is not an infinite resource. There is only a finite number of people who have the capacity to go into this kind of work. Clinicians are just moving from one area to another. They are not actually creating more and more mental health practitioners, even after the investment of $1.9 billion. What on earth is the solution that Jack is proposing that governments and large multi-million dollar companies have not yet come up with? Comes back to what we can do individually in the moment to assume responsibility for what we can control. And that is to understand mental health better. Do so in service of those around you. You do not have to become a licensed mental health professional, although if you have the capacity to, please go ahead and do it. I'm a college professor and scientist. I have no official training in mental health. But in Australia, we have a mental health first aid training program where you can go and take a course from trained and licensed instructors where these mental health professionals, they are training more mental health advocates. And that really has the model of scalability. If you go and take these courses and you then become an instructor, you need to train more people in becoming mental health and to teach other teachers to become advocates and instructors in mental health. That is the model that will work and be scalable to really make it much more effective. I'm not a mental health professional, but 
I at least understand the basic tenets of mental health first aid and what you're supposed to do. And after doing this mental health first aid course, I'm not afraid to have the conversation with people in my life that have mental health issues. And that is a huge step forward in the right direction. You do not have to become a fully vetted and qualified mental health professional to have an impact on mental health in your life and the lives of those around you. Understanding more about the problem and that can have an enormous impact. Learning more about mental health so that you're not afraid to raise awareness and support those around you even with your limited capacity and then you can direct them to the right support services which hopefully over time will continue to expand. It's not just throwing money at the problem. You have to know strategically where to spend your time and resources if we're going to improve our mental health overall in society. That is the conclusion of this episode of Crossover Connections with Jack Wang. You can find the audio version of the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, as well as Google Podcasts. The full video episodes are on my YouTube channel, Biolab Collective with Jack Wang. It's linked to a playlist in the show notes below. I'm Jack. Hope to connect with you again next time around.